Well, the Apostle Paul was in Jerusalem. He was convinced, constrained by the Holy Spirit to go there, in spite of repeated warnings from Christians all the way that he would be persecuted when he reached there. And at first the visit seemed to be going really well. He was received warmly by the Christians there. Uh, their leader James affirmed that the Gentile Christians were not under the law of Moses. Though he suggested that Paul should take some Jewish men to the temple, purify himself along with them, pay for their expenses in keeping a vow. And this would show that the Jewish Christians, that Paul actually wasn't against them keeping the law, as had been rumored among them. Paul was happy to do so. He, he took the men, he purified himself with them, he went to the temple with them, he gave, they gave notice for the, when the various days of purification would be, the offerings presented for each one of them. And as part of the ceremonies, Paul had to go to the temple on various days of the vow. Verse 27 tells us that when the seven days were almost completed, things took a sudden turn. He was spotted by some of the Jews from Asia. And that was the area that, where, where he had been forced to leave the synagogue. And those guys really had it in for him. The Jews from Asia, verse 27 again, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and I suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. So these guys put two and two together and got five. Well, it happens all the time, isn't it? Alright, see him with this Greek guy they recognize from Ephesus. And now he's in the temple, and they assume, they want to assume, that he's brought the Greek guy in as well. See, once people are angry with you, they'll find all more reasons to be angry with you, even if it's not right. Gentiles could only go to the outer court of the temple. The main parts of the temple were strictly off-limits. In fact, archaeologists have found two notices in the temple that say this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and the enclosure. Anyone caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. To bring a Gentile to the temple is like bringing a pig into a mosque. Do it only if you want to start a riot. Paul didn't do it. But they said he did. And that was enough to start the riot anyway. Verse 30. The whole city was stirred up. And people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. The apostle of Jesus Christ was attacked, dragged out of the temple, step by step, the gates firmly shut behind him. And this is the last time that Paul or any other apostle is mentioned as being in the temple, in the book of Acts. Israel had rejected her Messiah, and now Israel clearly and decisively rejects his messenger. Well, the Jews had dragged Paul outside the temple, now they're about to kill him, but... Well, there were, a, there were Roman soldiers stationed at a, at, a, at a large fortress that was based on a hill just outside the temple that's actually connected to the temple. 
And their positions, they can keep an eye on the temple without violating it. And there were two flights of stairs that led directly from the fortress to the outer court of the temple where the Gentiles were allowed. A cohort, which consists of a thousand men in all, uh, was, were, were stationed there. Because this is like a very, very sensitive kind of place. Well, the crowd's attempt to lynch Paul creates a disturbance. And so the soldiers come in to break it up. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, a word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, that's good, isn't it? But then, what does the tribune do next? Verse 33. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Right? They are the ones beating him up, and then he's the one who gets arrested. Lah. Sounds a bit other way. Okay. Paul, and he's arrested and he's chained, even without a charge. But the tribune had to find out what was wrong. So in the end of verse 33, what's he doing? He's inquiring who he was, what he had done. But by now the crowd has expanded so much that there's pretty much all these people rioting and angry for all kinds of reasons, no specific reason, all centered around Paul, but don't know what's going on, why, and all that. And so in verse 34, some in the crowd are shouting one thing, some in the crowd are shouting another, and he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, and so he ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. He wanted to take him up into the fortress. But the angry crowds are still angry, and they're still after him. And so when they come to the steps, verse 35, he's actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowds. So there's the picture. He's Paul's been carried by the Roman soldiers, being brought up to the barracks in the fortress because the rioting of the Jews coming around him. And just before they enter, Paul stops them. Verse 37, he says to the tribune, may I say something to you? Now, the tribune is surprised to hear him speaking in Greek. He says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt? Verse 38, and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. You see, back in AD 54, there had been a false prophet from Egypt who gathered all these followers and he attacked Jerusalem, uh, saying that he, uh, he would bring down the walls of Jerusalem, uh, like the walls of Jericho. Right? He had those kind of ideas. But when he got to the Mount of Olives, the Romans attacked him, then finished life. Right? The troops were scattered. He himself escaped and disappeared. And the tribune thinks that Paul's the one. Paul's him. Right? Because that, that would fit in. Like, why would the Jews are so angry to see him here? But obviously he wasn't. And Paul answers him in verse 39. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure country. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So he explains where he comes from. He's a Jew from Tarsus. Tarsus is a city up, 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 up north, uh, on the edge of, uh, on the eastern edge of, of what we now know as Turkey. Now, for people in those days, your status in society partly depended upon where you were born. And Tarsus was a great city, a cultured, a privileged place, and so he had some standing when he talks to the, the Roman tribune. He must be a cultured and privileged kind of person. Uh, furthermore, 
from the Roman tribune's point of view, well, he's not the Egyptian who he thought he was. Maybe the crowd thinks he's that. Maybe he can speak and, and let him explain, or uh, maybe he can calm the crowd, or I don't know actually what's the reason why a tribune actually lets him speak. But in God's sovereignty, he does. And verse 40, he's given permission. So Paul stands on the steps. He's on the steps of the, going up to the fortress. Right? He's chained. He's got the Roman soldiers guarding him. And he motions with his hands to the people. To quiet them down so I can speak to you. And the people stop to listen. And there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. This guy speaks Hebrew, or Aramaic. He's, he's got cred. Let's stop and listen. It's interesting, isn't it, how Paul uses different aspects of his skill and history to gain standing with the Romans and then again standing with the Jews to use whatever he can to get a hearing. So when he has their full attention, he begins his defense. But he doesn't use his speaking opportunity to say, actually, I didn't really bring a Gentile to the temple. I wouldn't really do such a... He uses it to give his testimony. And he uses it to show that he was a Jew just like them, except that Jesus had appeared to him. He wants them to see the continuity between being a Jew and being a Christian, and then later on to show them there is salvation for the Gentiles as well. So he starts off by giving them a bit of personal background. Verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. He acknowledges their zeal. And he identifies, he, he, he tells them, he's, he grew up in Jerusalem. He's been a disciple of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very popular and revered Old Testament teacher. He was a Pharisee, a scholar, a scholar of the law of Moses. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. Everyone looked up to him. He was considered a very wise man. And Paul was his pupil. See? I'm his pupil. More credibility. Then he tells a story. Verse 4. I persecuted this way. That is what they call the Christian faith at that stage. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. He was doing all those things, and they all knew him. He was the top instigator of the persecution of the Christian church, even pursuing Christians to places where they ran away. And you know, under the Romans, the high priest has the right of extradition of the people in his area who are fleeing justice. And so Paul says he went and got documents from the high priest to authorize them to go and chase them and bring them back. So verse 5 continues, As the high priest, uh, From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Right, he's going to bring them to be like, well, he is now, isn't it? Let me say, Damascus is not like PJ, just up the road from KL. It was 240 kilometers from Jerusalem, 
just a little bit less than distance from here to Kuantan. This guy is so zealous that he takes the initiative to get extradition papers, get a party together and walk or at the most, most ride 240 kilometers and back just to chase down Christians who had run away there. He is so sure that this way is so wrong, it is so dangerous, he is so convinced that he has to stop it, that he is willing to do all that to snuff it out. But then something happens on the road that will change his life. He testifies in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near, drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. This must have been a really bright light because, why? It's brighter than the sun at noon, isn't it? Noon, you're pretty bright already and suddenly this is even bright. And he falls to the ground before this light. Either in worship or someone knocked over by his conqueror. And either way, he hears a voice. A voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And he answers, Who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. What a shock. Jesus of Nazareth had indeed been, been resurrected, was, was alive and active, had, had arrested Paul. And Paul, by persecuting his followers, was persecuting him. How do you feel if you were in Paul's shoes back at this time? You've been working so hard to exterminate these people, and now you discover that you've been on the wrong side all along. Maybe you're just ready to face judgment and die, huh? Now, Paul wants them to know, as he tells the story, that he wasn't alone when this happened. He says in verse 9, Those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So there's something going on externally, something going on internally. He wants to know it's not all in his head. Other people saw things and heard things as well, but the encounter was just for him. So there's both going on. Jesus had confronted Paul. And Paul, who had fallen before him, was, was waiting for his instructions. What shall I do, Lord? Verse 10. And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, for there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So Paul rose to go, but he'd been blinded by the intensity of the light. He said he could not see because of the blindness of the light. And so he was led by the hand to Damascus. And at this point, Paul introduces a man who lived in Damascus named Ananias. And again, he introduces him in a way that's helpful to these Jews. He says, and what Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, verse 13, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers, notice the continuity with the Jewish faith, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, the Messiah, the one who God had been promising all this time, and to hear a voice from his mouth, 
For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul had been appointed to be the witness of the Messiah, the righteous one. God chose him to see Jesus, to hear his voice, to speak about him. And while Jesus had, had appeared to him in this very special and unique way, he also wanted him to do the usual things as well, like be baptized. The washing away of sin by calling on the name of Jesus happens on the inside, and baptism is what happens on the outside. A sign, if you like, of the reality, but... The two sides of the same coin. And he said, don't wait. Rise and be baptized. That's something that some of you need to do as well, don't you? Well, that was the first big thing that happened to Paul. But there was also another story. Paul saw Jesus, who spoke to him on another occasion while he was in a trance, and this was in a temple in Jerusalem. And he, he mentions it again, he mentions it here to show them how, how Jewish the Jewish Christian faith is. Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, there he is back in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him say to me, that is Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now you remember, in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah saw God's glory in the temple. And now Paul sees Jesus. God sent Isaiah on a mission. Jesus sends Paul on a mission. God sent Isaiah to the people of Judah. Jesus tells Paul to leave Jerusalem. For they're not going to accept his witness. And Paul tries to argue with him. He can reach the Jerusalem people because he, he, he's one of them. They know what he was like before. Surely they'll see the dramatic change and accept his testimony. Verse 19. Paul says, Lord... They themselves knew that, know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Surely they'll know that, that this is real. The change is so big, but... Mention of Stephen means maybe Paul also feels he owes it to the Jewish Christians to serve among them because of the way he persecuted them before. How he was complicit in the murder of Stephen. And maybe he should bear witness to Jesus. Testimony, witness, same word. In Jerusalem, among the Jews in his place. But whatever he's thinking, the risen Jesus won't have any of it. He's got his own plan. And he says in verse 21, Go! For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Go. Now the crowd, they had listened all this while. But now this is too much. The talk about Jesus appearing to Paul in the temple. Sending him to the Gentiles. This is, <laughs> this is, cannot lie. And so in verse 22, they raised their voice. 
And they say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, probably a mock stoning. Uh, these, were, these were angry people now. Paul had put Jesus in the place of God, put himself in the place of Isaiah, and to them was blasphemy, and to make it worse, he's implying that God of Israel was sending his servant to the temple, not to his people anymore, but to the Gentiles. They were angry. You can't say this kind of thing. And they wanted Paul dead. Now the tribune the Roman army leader, didn't actually understand all this. Remember, Paul switched to Hebrew to make this speech. And this guy wants to find out what he said. <laughs> that got them all upset. And so in verse 23, he, or verse 24, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. It's interesting, isn't it? It's going to be questioning Jack Bauer kind of style. Alright? It seems a kind of interrogation is pretty routine. Huh? Oh, let's bring him back and flog him and find out what was going on. Huh? But Paul had a car that he hadn't played yet. Verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Oh, of course it's not. Paul had spoken before about coming from Tarsus, but he hadn't said he was also a Roman citizen. Dual citizenship was well established in those days. As a citizen of Rome, he had rights. If they flogged him or beat him up or were violent towards him when he wasn't condemned, they would be in huge trouble. So lessons some of other police need to learn as well. In Paul's case, if he wasn't a Roman citizen, then it would have been okay for them. It would have been okay if he was just a citizen of a conquered area. But they were the army of Rome, and he was a citizen of Rome. This is serious. So when the centurion heard this, verse 26... He went to the tribune, his boss, and he said to him, What are you going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He says, Yes. The tribune answered, oh, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. He had to get a big, do a, give a big bribe in order to get it. And Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. This man in their society, Paul outranks the tribune. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. Actually, they'd gone too far already. It was fine to arrest a Roman citizen, but it was already illegal to bind him in public. That would have been a disgrace. And so they were, the tribune was afraid. He was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You see, Paul knew his rights, and if and when it suited him, he wasn't reluctant to claim them. Well, we leave the story there, but make sure you come back next week to find out what happens next. But let's, let's think about some of the things we've learned from this passage. First of all, let's remember the example shown by the Apostle Paul here when he is persecuted. He's misunderstood, falsely accused, attacked, 
and treated in a way that's inconsistent with his rights. Just like his Lord, really. But like Jesus, there's no evidence of self-pity or anger or complaining it's not fair. He expected to be persecuted when he came to Jerusalem. And so when persecution came, he was okay to handle it. And he used it as an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you and I should always expect... Well, we start again. You and I always expect to be treated fairly in a world of sinful people, don't we? But, but like Paul, we are followers of Jesus, who was misunderstood, falsely accused, and wrongly attacked. We kind of like ought to expect that. That's that's normal. In fact, actually, truth be known, we who love Jesus and are being conformed to him as his image often don't treat other people fairly. Do you notice that sometimes? So why do we expect that people who don't know God and who have other agendas would do that for us? On a national scale, when people spread false rumors about Christians planning to take over the country and make it into a Christian nation, or that, we get all uptight. Hey, chill out. On an individual level, when people accuse us wrongly about what we do for Christ, we get really upset. But we need to adjust our expectations. Expect to be persecuted. Expect to be misunderstood. Expect that people will interpret what you say in the wrong way. That's just, that's just going to happen. Just work out how you can use that for the gospel. You're going to be persecuted anyway, whether it's for something you did or something you didn't do. So be godly. Stay calm. Use it for the gospel. At the same time, there's no harm in putting your best foot forward in the situation. When Paul spoke to the Jews, he emphasized his Jewish identity. When Paul spoke to the Roman soldiers, he told them about coming from Tarsus. Emphasize what's helpful, of course true, for the sake of the gospel. And don't be afraid of using your legal rights. Know your rights and claim them. Paul used his Roman citizenship when he needed to. But all these things are if and when necessary, for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, remember what Paul was doing when he was attacked. There he was in the temple completing a vow of purification, and some of us find that shocking. Paul was willing to participate in a ceremonial rites in the temple, even though he knew they were all fulfilled in Christ. But you see, Paul was free from the law. Where it would help to keep the gospel, where it would help to advance the gospel, he would happily keep the law of Moses. To the Jew, he became a Jew. Where it would help the gospel, he would happily disregard it. And to the Greeks, he became a Greek. So that people will be saved. He did it for the gospel. And friends, we are free. But we are not in bondage to our freedom. We are free to fast in Lent for the sake of the gospel, as long as we do it in a way that's consistent with the gospel. And we are free to ignore Lent for the sake of the gospel, as long as we do that in a way that's consistent with the gospel. We are free to wear robes in church if that's going to advance the gospel, as long as we're not doing it in a way that contradicts the gospel. We are free to wear jeans in church for the sake of the gospel, if that's going to advance the gospel, as long as we're not doing that in a way that's contradictory to the gospel. 
There are many things that we're not constraining as long as we're acting in love and looking out for the body and prioritizing the gospel. Now, of course, it doesn't mean we can do whatever we like. If we have a command from God, of course, we have to obey it. It's a command from God. If we have a principle from God in the scriptures, we must do our very best to put it into practice. It's, freedom is not an excuse for sin. For example, we are not free to participate in the worship at an idol's temple. To do things that are no longer necessary in the temple of God in order to, fa- to, to foster Jewish Gentile unity in the church is very different from doing things in idol's temple that is abhorrent to God in order to please our family. Yet within the bounds of what God has declared explicitly, and the application of the principles he's laid out for us, there is great freedom and flexibility that we are to use for the advance of the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Thirdly, as we recall the account of Paul's conversion and calling, we, the great thing that stands for us, isn't it, is that it's the sovereign grace of God. God's grace means the salvation that he gives is entirely undeserved. It's his kindness, nothing else, that causes him to save someone. And his grace is sovereign, it's completely up to him who he saves. And the conversion of Paul is a beautiful illustration of that truth. Paul didn't decide for Christ, he was persecuting Christ. Christ decided for him and intervened in his life. God had every right to judge him, to to condemn him, but instead he showed him mercy and chose to use him. That is grace. God being kind to someone who doesn't deserve it. It didn't happen to everyone who persecuted Christians. But it did happen to Saul in God's sovereignty. And that's how it always is for those who belong to Christ. Even if we think that we have chosen Christ, in the end we find that that is because that Christ in his mercy has first chosen us. Those of us who are in Christ are recipients of God's grace, entirely undeserved. And as we think about grace, let's remember that no one is beyond the grace of God because grace is grace is grace. How bad do you have to be before God can say, you're too bad for me to save? I bet that no one here has got to the point of persecuting Jesus and being a mur- accomplice in the murder of God's servants. Gone around trying to jail God's people, desperately trying to stamp out the Christian faith before it gets going, and bring to nothing everything that Christ died to achieve. Anyone do that here? I don't think so. If Paul could be doing that, and God's grace could reach him, do you think that God cannot forgive what you have done? Do you think the death of Christ could pay for Paul's sins and not for yours? If you trust in Jesus, then you can be forgiven. To know the freedom of being accepted by God, 
being justified, declared not guilty, because Jesus took your punishment on your behalf. And you can stand before God in the day of judgment, pure and clean, with no condemnation, even though you know you are a sinner, because the grace of God reaches even to the worst of sinners. The other thing that we noticed as we went along was how Jesus identifies with his people. Remember when he spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus? He didn't say, why do you persecute my people? He said, why do you persecute me? In your outlines I've entitled this Union with Christ in Persecution. We talked about union with Christ all over the place in, in uh, smack ago. By, remember that by faith in Christ, we're united with him spiritually, get all the benefits of his death and his resurrection and and when we're united with Christ, we are members of his body, and when people persecute us, actually they're persecuting him. And whatever people do to you, remember that Jesus takes it personally. God will not fail to take action. He will bring your persecutors to judgment, or to repentance and salvation as you pray for them. Either way, Jesus cares about what you go through. He identifies with the persecution of his people. And finally, we recall that God, God is fulfilling his plan. Right through the book of Acts, we've seen God's plan has been for the gospel to go out from Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God converted Paul, made him apostle of the Gentiles. Jesus sent him out from the temple to take the message to Gentile territory. And even here in the misunderstanding, the riot, the arrest, Paul playing the citizen's card, all those things, God is in control. God saves Paul through the Roman guard stationed at the temple. And he will use his situation to bring out his plans, as we see going on in the future. Because, brothers and sisters, God has a plan, he has a mission. The gospel is going out into all the world. He is gathering men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation who are saved by the death of his Son, submitting to Christ as the King and who will stand before him in love and adoration forever. And here we see the next step of God's plan to make that a reality. History is going somewhere. God is achieving his purpose. Let's make sure that God's mission is our mission. That God's plan is our plan. That God's goal is our goal. And as we think about our lives, let's make sure that we're aligned. If not, we need to lift up our eyes and, and look beyond the mundane and look at the big picture and grasp God's program for the world and ask how we, in our little way, fit into, into that. Because the gospel has spread from Judea to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, still spreading throughout the world. God is in control of this process. And through all the different things that happen, the misunderstandings, the rescues, the riots, he will see it through. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to face uh, misunderstanding, attack, unfair treatment, suffering and even death for us. Thank you that the Apostle Paul, whom we read of today, walked faithfully in his steps. And we pray that we in our time might do the same. We pray that you help us uh, to have our expectations right, that we wouldn't be taken aback when persecution comes. Help us to keep an eye on the big picture, the fact that you are drawing people to Christ from all the nations. And please help us to trust in your sovereignty as you do that. We pray that um, in all the different things that happen in our lives, what seems to be good, what seems to be bad, you'll help us to trust that you are fulfilling your purposes. And I pray that you help us to align our purposes with yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.